Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles, arms held wide. If we're going to fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're going to stand, we stand as giants. If we're going to walk, we walk as lions. Good morning. It's the 14th of July, 2022. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. If you were to visit us at MyFaithRadio.com, one of the things that you would find there is our wonderful Bundle Up for Summer big book, biggest book giveaway ever opportunity. We're giving away bundles of books each week this month, so go check that out. Um, I know you're book lovers, and so great opportunity this month to get yourself some books. Um, We also are encouraging you to share your faith radio story with us at MyFaithRadio.com. And if you're not already signed up for it, every single day we we send out via email this Grow Your Faith verse of the day. And so today's Grow Your Faith verse of the day at MyFaithRadio.com is from Jeremiah 29, and it's actually two verses. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Jeremiah 29, 11 and 12. Do you trust that God knows the plans he has for you? Do you walk by faith each and every day in the goodness of God's plan and in his grace, which is all sufficient, in his mercies that are new every morning? Do you trust in his great faithfulness? The promise um, declared in Jeremiah 29 is a promise for you and for me. Um, One of the ways that Paul talks about it is living in the confidence that um, God has already prepared in advance the good works for us to do. And then he has supplied every good and perfect gift necessary for the accomplishing of his will in our lives, which is to say you and I have everything we need to live into the plans that God has for us. So I hope that's an encouragement to you this morning. A couple of uh, headlines before we jump into our weekly conversation with Ben Johnson. Um, Inflation. Uh, I probably don't need to tell you that it's uh, it's bad, um, that it's ongoing, that it continues to rise, that the cost of chicken is up 19 percent year over year. Um, Overall, the cost of groceries is up 12 percent year over year. Gas is up 60 percent year over year. Um, Electricity up 14 percent. Rents up almost 6%, on and on and on and on and on. Um, The consumer price index rose 9.1% in the 12 months that ended in June of 2022. And the forecast is um, that's going to continue. So I want to encourage you, um, want to encourage you to be sharing with those who um, did not store up in the grain barns for the lean times and recognize that... um, this is going to be an opportunity for uh, you and I as Christians to um, to share with those who thought that the days of prosperity would never come to an end um, and for uh, for us to come alongside one another um, and share share what we have that no one might be in need 
which there are very real needs, not only here in this country, but around the world as well. Um, and in a story in what, what I would describe as just a horrific intersection of several cultural trends or several cultural threads anyway, um, revealing just how thin our national fabric has now frayed. Um, President Biden sought to use a story of a 10-year-old rape victim in Ohio uh, as a bludgeon against pro-life Americans, um, saying that she was forced to leave Ohio in order for the child um, she was carrying due to rape uh, to be aborted. Um, Ohio denied that, and we now also know that the man who raped her repeatedly by his own admission is in the country uh, illegally, having crossed the southern border from Guatemala and then allowed to remain in the United States awaiting a hearing on his asylum claim. This process, by the way, is completely broken. The average wait time for a hearing today, I looked it up, the average wait time for an asylum hearing for someone crossing the southern border illegally, 1,700 days, nearly five years, before they even uh, are going to have uh, have the question of their asylum claim heard by a judge in the United States. So I was reminded of the reality exposed in the book of Judges. We know from the book of Ruth that in the days of the judges, there was massive human migration for lots of reasons and causes. We also know that in the midst of that, vulnerable people were regularly victimized, as in the, in the words of the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The strong preyed on the weak and sexual predators in particular satisfied their depraved appetites with impunity. And the story in Ohio, in the United States of America, in 2022, could have been drawn from the book of the Judges. Where in the word are you today? I'm in Judges 19 to 22, and I warn you, it is rated mature for its graphic and awful content. But we need to read it, because it sure does sound an awful like awful lot like the world we're living in right now. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. This is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Hey, Ben Johnson is back. Good morning, sir. You guys can find Ben. He's the rights writer on Twitter. You can also find him as a senior reporter and editor at the Washington Stand. Good morning. Good morning, Carmen. So um, you and I have a series of awful headlines to talk about, and I just confess that in advance. Um, The release yesterday of the video from the interior of the hallway um, of the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Um, I want to talk about two threads of this. Number one, the release of the video to the public through the media before the families saw the video Um, and a conversation just about that. Now, for our listeners, let's be clear. um, Although you do see the shooter, you see the shooter's face and you hear the gunfire. You do not hear um, the the sounds of um, uh, of the screams and the crying that has been edited out. And you do not see any. what I would describe as violent graphic content, because for the entirety of the more than hour long video, 
um, officers stand in the hallway. And so the other question, Ben, that I want to raise, in addition to the media question, is the question of the behavior of the officers in the video. Well, the uh, the media question that you want to talk about, of course, this video, as you mentioned, was released by the uh, Austin newspaper in that area one day before it was supposed to be viewed by uh, the parents of the children who were targeted by uh, the madman in this school in Uvalde. Uh, there are various explanations why uh, someone would want to put this forward. Uh, typically, a, a newspaper or a media outlet would defer if it had a good relationship with the police. Uh, oftentimes, in, when I was in local media, we would know things long before we were allowed to report them because we had a good relationship with the police department. We trusted them when they said this would interfere with our uh, investigation. And as long as they kept their part of the bargain, we would hold on to that information until it was no longer going to interfere with anything. Uh, in typically, if especially if we're talking about something like a murder uh, or a mass murder, you would assure that the survivors and the, the, the next of kin were the first to see this material. Uh, and yet they leaked it, I, I suspect, because they do not any they have no further trust in the local police system after everything that they've seen on that video, it's hard to blame them. Yeah. And so for people who have not watched the video, and I'm not actually uh, recommending really that you watch the video, um, suffice it to say that many, many officers come into and out of the camera view in the course of the more than um, 70 minute minutes accounted for. Um, and, it is evident to me, I will describe it this way, Ben, no one is in charge. People are wandering around like sheep without a shepherd. Nobody seems to know what they should do. And I suspect that the reason that some officers appear and then disappear is it occurs to them that if they go outside, they might be able to help in some different way, um, being able to uh, or not being instructed to do anything inside. Uh, and so I think there's going to be conversation going forward about uh, chain of, I mean, you know, ongoing conversation about chain of command, who was in charge and why um, no one uh, gave orders to these officers to breach that door. Um, but I wanted that, to make people aware, uh, you know, of, of the video and the ongoing conversation surrounding it. Yeah, chain of command is definitely one of the issues that's being raised. Uh, there's various finger pointing at this point between the various agencies that were involved. Uh, and and you're right. The, if you watch the almost 80 minute long video, uh, it's it's sort of like being an air traffic controller. It's long patches of tedium broken by moments of terror. So you hear shots, uh, as you say, all of the screams have been edited out. But then you see police officers enter and then more police officers enter and more police officers enter three different cohorts of police officers um, more than half an hour before anyone enters the schoolroom. At one point, one of the officers is seen stopping and using hand sanitizer, and people are looking at their phones in these videos. You wonder what is going on. Uh, part of it is certainly a chain of command issue. Uh, I think that uh, in, in terms of our spiritual uh, aspect, what is missing here uh, is the idea uh, that uh, these police officers uh, have, uh, obviously they signed up in order to protect other people, but uh, it, it Whatever it was that uh, occurred here, and we've got varying accounts, one of the people said they were concerned about uh, the lives of their officers, so they didn't send the officers in. And that's exactly the wrong focus when you're talking about someone who's a mass shooter in a school full of innocent children. That's why police officers go into, uh, into this area. 
And ultimately, what it brought to mind for me was C.S. Lewis and uh, what I think is one of his greatest essays of all time, Men Without Chests, uh, mm-hmm. that we expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings to be fruitful. And so we've spent so much time um, scrutinizing and uh, and stigmatizing things like uh, masculinity. And there's certainly aspects of that which are worthy of scrutiny. I think Christianity did a, a great job of smoothing out the edges in many ways. But uh, when it comes to certain aspects of masculinity, perhaps they're, they're uh, troublesome. But the idea that a man, the greatest aspect of a man is to protect the weak and the suffering, that is something that uh, has been leaked out of our culture and we find that it's not there when we need it most desperately ben and i are going to um continue talking about uh, what's going on in the culture today and how we as christians need to and must respond Um, next up we're going to talk about a story out of philadelphia you may have seen this horrific video as well a group of teenagers young teenagers come to find out at uh, about 2.38 in the morning a couple of weeks ago, beat a 73-year-old Philadelphia man to death um, using a traffic cone. We now know uh, the identity of some of those individuals. One of them is 10 years old. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show we do on the Faith Radio Network every day. There is a lot going on at Faith Radio Tons of free resources waiting for you to take advantage of and share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. Be sure to check us out on social media as well. Um, This is a community of believers, and we gather together here, and we all need prayer. And, well, we'd love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer. We pray for specific requests every single week when we gather on Tuesdays and Thursdays as a staff. So share your prayer request with us anonymously and securely on our website at MyFaithRadio.com and then be assured of our prayers for you in the spirit of Christ. Check it all out at MyFaithRadio.com. As go its children, so goes a culture. That might be one way of thinking about what we're talking about today. Headlines related to a very young man. In Uvalde, Texas, uh, a conversation now about young people on the streets of Philadelphia. Um, Maybe you have also seen the video from St. Paul, Minnesota, of toddlers, um, so little that some of them are still in diapers, um, cursing at and, and hitting police officers who are on the scene to, um, to execute a warrant related to a homicide. Ben, um, what's going on with our children, and can a culture recover when its children are this lost? Well, you're talking about these terrible incidents. Uh, in, in the one case, you're looking at a 73-year-old man in Philadelphia surrounded by a group of seven, basically, children uh, who, as you mentioned, begin to beat him with various objects, including a traffic cone, and eventually he died of his injuries. Uh, This is a man who uh, apparently was known in the area. He liked to walk this trail, and this group of children just surrounded him. Uh, A 12-year-old boy, uh, I'm sorry, a 14-year-old boy has been charged, but he brought his 10-year-old brother along with him, who was part of this group of seven uh, young people. And then a 12- and 14-year-old girl have come forward as part of that group. So they're still looking for three more people in approximately the same age group. 
uh, all of them uh, now guilty of murder uh, if, if the um, video is to be believed. So that's that's uh, one of the two incidents. Uh, and what that what that shows us is simply the devaluing of life, the fact that uh, everything is now a reality TV show and any anything that can be done uh, is is filmed and used as a thrill. And when you begin to devalue life at any aspect, as our culture has done so pervasively, whether it's in the womb, whether it's euthanasia at the end of life, whether it's degrading those who are ill and infirm or who are born with a, a diagnosis of Down syndrome, or if you're talking about homeless people and poor people and elderly people, you believe that your life is more valuable than theirs and their life is essentially at your disposal. That percolates through every layer of society. And I think that ties in with the other story that you're talking about, about this, these young children in diapers. Uh, the one in question looks like he's about three or four and he's punching an officer and calling him swear words. And the officer, to be commended, keeps his cool the entire time, doesn't say anything, doesn't do anything that would be uh, the least bit concerning in, uh, in Minneapolis. And what that tells me is that children are great learners. It shows the intelligence of these children uh, in a perverse way, because what he's doing to these officers is exactly what society has been doing to all of law enforcement uh, for the last several years. We've been castigating them. We've been looking at only the negative aspects, only the flaws, just as they did to uh, people who were in ministry for many, many years. You only look at the couple of televangelist scandals or the mega church people and not at the wonderful things that the church does each and every day. And that is the caricature that becomes uh, the, the antitype for everyone who belongs to that uh, group. And the young people pick that up and they act it out on those people who are acting in their best interest. Yeah, the uh, the use of of language that is um, certainly inappropriate for a child of such an age. The um, the reliance upon violence as this child's instinctive um, response to the presence of a police officer. Um, yeah, I do think that it is evidence of the patterning that uh, that happens or the imprinting upon a child their um, how they learn. I guess my question for us today, Ben, is um, how does a culture recover when it's children? Because now we're talking about, you know, coast to coast, far and wide, um, up and down the economic scale. Um, how does a culture recover when its children um, get to the place where they are doing whatever they feel like doing, whatever is right in their own eyes? And in in at least these three cases, um, Uvalde... Philadelphia and uh, and St. Paul, Minnesota, you know, they are they are acting out in aggressive, violent ways to the to the detriment of others. Like, how does well, a culture survive that, I guess, is my question. Uh, I, I think the beginning of that is the beginning of rebuilding culture is the, to rebuild the fundamental building block of culture, which is the family. Uh, when you look at school shooters, just to tie our entire conversation together, you know, school shooters overwhelmingly in some Studies between three quarters and 80 percent of school shooters or mass shooters come from fatherless homes. About the same percentage have an undiagnosed mental illness or on psychotropic drugs. Uh, And when you look at uh, gang activity, fatherless children are overwhelmingly inclined to be involved in gang activity. Uh, This is one study after another. Even Barack Obama, to his credit, highlighted this during his eight years in office. So we need to rebuild 
the home and have people take responsibility for themselves, for the children they father, and raise the children and love them. Uh, now, that's obviously a, a long climb. In the meantime, the church has to step in and be an intermediary uh, church to introduce them to the true Heavenly Father. So we have to have ministries that deal with children and that reach out to those who are in the community and find them before the gang finds them. Uh, we were talking about, uh, for example, a, a story out in uh, Pottstown, Pennsylvania, uh, which is in extreme southeast Pennsylvania, uh, an Episcopal church and a Methodist church work together in order to uh, open up uh, a ministry and outreach to uh, those who are in need in the area, and the city is suing them. Uh, so rather than helping them, they say that it violates a zoning law, a zoning ordinance. They're not zoned for this. Uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, my colleague Joshua Arnold has uh, an article about it at the Washington Stand. Excellent article. Uh, everything that he writes is great. But this particular story uh, is talking about how in Pottstown, they say that uh, this is not zoned uh, for what you are doing to serve a meal or to help people. And uh, you are only zoned essentially for worship. And uh, this is this makes you, quote unquote, more than a church. Well, the church's job is specifically to care for others. Charity has been part of the church's job since the second chapter of Acts. So it is our job to reach out, to care for, to minister. And these young people who are slipping through the cracks are evidence that we are not doing it and that the intermediary, the intermediary institutions that should be stepping up are not able to provide with the kind of spiritual direction and love and concern for those young people that the church would do if we were able to do our jobs. Yeah, the crisis is growing. Um, Doug on the text line says, with 930 homeless children in Madison School District alone and possibly 7 million homeless children nationwide, um, the, you know, the layers of this problem are many. Acknowledge that, um, you know, the church needs to be on the forefront. And when I say church, I'm using the broadest definition of that term possible. Um, every Christian in every place needs to figure out what role we're going to play um, but I also just absolutely openly confess and acknowledge it is really hard to imagine who's going to be willing to take these kids in when we have this evidence that they're so violent. Like, you know, I, I mean, who who is going to step forward for foster care, you know, to open up their home and their family, you know, for others? Like, I, I think we are at an inflection point as a culture. And, you know, I, I don't want to be the person that just raises an alarm and doesn't offer hope. But I also want to, you know, I, I want to raise the alarm because it is ringing. It is ringing, and it's it's uh, I, you, you can think of it as a fire alarm, or you can think of it as a wake up call. Uh, for a very long time, the church has been asleep. We've sort of outsourced our ministries uh, either to local government or to other civic organizations, but we haven't stepped up. And now we have these cascading uh, issues where we have various problems that are all coming to fruition at the same time. Uh, you've got mm -hmm. homeless children, and then at the same time you have Roe v. Wade being overturned, so you're going to have more children being produced. This is, the this is the chance for the church to do what it was founded to do, which is to step up and provide the charity, provide the support, and the love and direction for all those who are involved here. And uh, it's time for us to hear the wake-up call, to listen to the alarm, and see if we are going to be the hands and the feet and the body of Christ. If we do that, then the world will benefit as a result, and not only will they receive the services and the love and uh, the food that they need, but they'll also receive an introduction to their true Heavenly Father, who will fill their hearts with love in this world and bring them to the kingdom of heaven in the next. 
Yeah, revival. Revival is where that is where that uh, arrives. So thank you so much, Ben. As always, um, we love talking with you. You can find Ben Johnson at WashingtonStand.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. The January 6th committee hearing this week featured testimony from an individual who spent years as an active part of a paramilitary militia called the Oath Keepers. Nationalism and therefore Christian, quote unquote, Christian nationalism is in the headlines. Um, People are talking about it. And so we need to sort it out and understand um, what's going on in our country and actually in countries around the world as well. So Pastor David Ritchie literally wrote a book on this topic. He's a pastor in Amarillo, Texas. He's going to talk with us about what nationalism is, what its origins are, um, and the reality of its demonic nature. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot and scheme? The bullets can't stop the prayers we pray in the name of the Prince of Peace. All right, David Ritchie is joining us. David is the pastor at Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. He's also um, a podcaster, which his podcasts are excellent. Uh, and he is the author of Why Do the Nations Rage? You can find him at David A. Ritchie. Dot com. Um, David, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. Honored to visit with you again. All right. So it's wonderful, um, wonderful to talk with you. I would like to begin at the end. Um, what is your prayer as a pastor serving in West Texas today? My prayer as a pastor is to simply show people the glory and, and the beauty of Jesus Christ in such a way that nothing else outshines that glory um, to show them that his his kingdom is worthy of all of our allegiance, all of our devotion, um, all of our allegiance. Yeah, and I wanted to start there because I don't want people to um, imagine that what you and I are doing is, you know, tearing down the United States of America or disrespecting her flag or anything like that. Um, for the for those who listen um, here with any regularity, they know, you know, I mean, I'm a flag waving American, but I am a Jesus honoring um, cross-bowing Christian first and an American second. Um, and so I think that having um, an ordered understanding of those things and the relative glory of my nation in relationship to the ultimate glory of the cross and the kingdom of Christ is one of the things that we want to talk about here. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, in fact, I make a distinction very early on in my book, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, that nationalism is something that's distinct from patriotism. It's something that is quite distinct from what I would envision um, as a rightly ordered love for our nation. Um, a rightly ordered love for our nation is is necessary for a civil society to work. Uh, we need a sense of national identity, a sense of national solidarity. Those are all good things. But like any good thing, that love can be distorted 
into an ultimate thing. And that's when we have this idolatrous um, allegiance to our nation or our political vision of a nation. And that's something that I've just seen be such a pronounced um, threat, uh, particularly in, in my community, but also increasingly much more in the nation as well. Yeah. So let's talk about the title of the book, because it's obviously biblical. Why do the nations rage? It's a super provocative question for today. And then the subhead, the demonic origin of nationalism. Um, Let's talk about the reality that the nations rage and that the nations are going to continue to rage until God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. That's exactly right. I mean, essentially, I wanted to come at this question with a distinctly biblical and theological framework. And what I mean by that is nationalism is something, as you've recently mentioned, it's something in the news. It's something that um, garners attention, but it's also been a, a massive force in history. And it's been something that's been rightly explored from the standpoint of sociology. It's been explored from a more historical angle, and also political sciences are obviously interested in it. However, I, I wanted to be able to ask the question, does the Word of God give us categories to be able to to locate this particular phenomenon? It, are, are there ways that the Word of God can be able to, to show us um, a sense of understanding and uh, the the place that the people of God have in this story in relationship to the nations of the world. And so um, that was really the, the onset uh, of the book. Um, uh, it also uh, coincided with some of my, my thesis research. And, and I wanted to simply try to furnish theological language to try to be able to understand this reality. We're talking with Pastor David Ritchie. We're talking about his book, Why Do the Nations Rage?, you can find David and the book at davidarichie.com. Give us a little um, status update on reality. Um, what are you experiencing as a pastor in relationship to nationalism and its, how it's competing for the minds and hearts of, of people today? I've really come to believe over the last few years that the most dominant form of religious rival in my community to biblical Christianity is nationalism. And what I mean by that is I've, I've noticed more and more um, over the last 10 years of being a lead pastor that the, the people that I serve, the people that I love in my community, people that um, many of them would even consider themselves believers, what has become the functional good news that resonates in their heart it is not a willingness to share with their neighbor the, the glory of Jesus and the glory of his kingdom, but, but rather to advocate for a particular vision of the kingdom of man. And, and again, like I said before, um, patriotism is a good thing. Um, loving our nation is a good thing. Even p- Christian political engagement is a good thing. But when that becomes ultimate, it, it really does distort into something that demands something that is akin to a level of religious allegiance. And, and I really have begun to see nationalism not just as a form of political ideology, but something that acts and operates a whole lot like a religion. In fact, I argue in the book that nationalism has this unique tendency that is is not just here in America, but throughout history and through different nations in the world to make a certain co-opting of Christian language and Christian mm-hmm. doctrinal categories to, in some ways, advance its own gospel. And, and so when you examine various versions of nationalism around the world, nationalism will oftentimes offer its own messianic characterization of certain political leaders. 
It'll offer its own doctrine of eschatology. Um, it'll oftentimes paint a picture of the glorious future that will happen if our side wins, but also the, the horrific apocalyptic outcome that if the other side wins. Um, a lot of times nationalism will co-opt um, uh, uh, the doctrine of the people of God in such a way to where the, the chosen people of God is, is no longer referring to the people of God per se, but rather the nation and the conception of nation and almost propagate this idea that a given nation has an ongoing covenant with God. And once that happens, it begins to import all of the religious affection and devotion that should be placed on the God of our gospel and instead place it upon a particular political vision or ideology. David, that's so good and so important, and I want to unpack some of that. Language, images, symbols, messianic characteristics, us versus them, eschatological promises and warnings. Nationalism, one of the things you talk about in the book is, and and help us see and understand, is that nationalism is not new, it's not particularly American, and it has very ancient origins. So part of this is getting at the root of the issue, You start in Babel, you take us to Deuteronomy 32 and help us understand that worldview. Um, So when we when we talk about these things, we have to talk about the ancient nature of the origins of the conversation we're having and take people into Scripture. So could you do that? Absolutely. Yeah. This particular form of idolatry is not a new phenomenon. It is something that has existed literally for a millennia. It's one of the oldest forms of idolatry that we have. And One of the things that I argue for in the book is is that it is a type of idolatry that is uniquely and particularly associated with spiritual agencies, with dark spiritual forces. And so uh, when you refer to Deuteronomy 32, uh, a portion of Deuteronomy 32 is essentially a theological commentary on the Babel event. Um, so what happens at Babel is, is something that Deuteronomy will later comment on. And essentially one of the things um, that Deuteronomy describes is that as, as mankind fails to you know, obey the, you know, the cultural mandate to spread across the earth and to be fruitful and multiply, but instead build this tower to heaven to ch- essentially try to um, uh, manage God and, um, uh, and work our way to heaven and essentially exalt the nation state to a, a, a central place of divinity, what is happening there is, is that Deuteronomy gives us extra spiritual insight and, and shows us that God essentially turns the nations over towards their desire. And, and there's this phrase that's used in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9, called uh, the Bene Elohim, the, the sons of God. And, and essentially, that idea throughout Scripture is going to mature into ultimately the Apostle Paul's doctrine of principalities and powers. And it's this notion that um, the, the nations of the world um, really were under a sense of spiritual oppression, um, that there were essentially these national patron deities that were not just worshipped as dead idols, but that there were, really was a, a sense of demonic oppression that these false gods had over the nations of the world. Now, of course, God out of the nations chooses Abraham and his family. And 
launches his glorious plan of redemption through the family of Abraham. But something happens um, at, at the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ to where the, the authority that the spiritual powers once had over the nations is um, ultimately dethroned by the greater power of, of Jesus Christ. And, and so what I'm trying to invite readers to see um, through this extended biblical analysis is that an ancient pagan worshiping an ancient pagan national deity is not that dissimilar from a modern-day nationalist giving all of their spiritual allegiance and devotion and spiritual fervor um, towards a, an idolatrous view of his or her nation. I heard something uh, in the January 6th testimony this week that made me think of you and uh, it made me look forward to the conversation that we're having right now. When Mr. Van Tatenhove made um, a, I mean, it, it clearly was not a part of maybe the testimony that he had um, thought about or prepared to give. But he said at one point, I can only thank the gods that, you know, it didn't go mm. further than it did. I can only thank the gods. And I yeah. thought to myself, well, there it is. There it is. Um, we're talking with Pastor David Ritchie. He is the pastor of Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. You can find him and his book, Why Do the Nations Rage?, at davidarichie.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at myfaithradio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. All right, we're talking with Pastor David Ritchie. We're talking about his book, Why Do the Nations Rage? We're trying to understand the world and the times in which we live and bring the mind of Christ to bear on the particular issue of nationalism. So we're talking about what it is and the origins of it, how it is expressed in the culture of which we are a part. Um, David, we have a question from a listener on the text line. So are the gods to which Yahweh allocated the nations after Babel still influencing the nations of the world today? I think that's a wonderful question. And I think when you look into the writings of the Apostle Paul, and this is particularly evident in the book of Ephesians and in the book of Colossians, is that the powers have been dethroned. Jesus has been placed in a, in a position of authority over them, and uh, we have been seated with Christ in, in that, that same place. But even though they are dethroned, the powers are still very much active in trying to deceive and to delude the church into adopting an identity and an allegiance that is outside of Christ. And why I think that has uh, reference to the conversation on nationalism is particularly when you look at a, like a book like Ephesians, what the powers are essentially doing is trying to deceive and delude people of God into uh, adopting as their highest allegiance, their, their former ethnic identity, their former national identity, their former cultural allegiance. And, and I think that there's a very similar 
play going on with nationalism to where it's basically saying that this love of nation, this this political vision of nation, maybe my political ideology is a love that has to be higher than all loves. Mm-hmm. And once we get into that conversation about um, something else other than Christ and his kingdom becoming the, the highest good, we really have crossed the line into worship. And, and, and we have to be corrected on that, um, to have our loves radically reordered um, by the truth of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. A radically reoriented love um, is a good segue into where do we go from here? I think that's such a, a pertinent question, Carmen. Uh, right now, one of my large convictions is that I do encourage pastors and Christian leaders and thoughtful Christians to really pay attention to this particular issue. It's not the only challenge that we face right now, but it is a significant one. And I think it's one that seems to be hidden to a lot of people. Um, a, a lot of times when we approach the conversation of Christian nationalism, which, which by the way, nationalism, if it's the highest um, allegiance uh, being accorded to the nation, essentially Christian nationalism is doing that in the name of Jesus, doing that in the mm-hmm. veneer uh, of Jesus. And, and I think that Christians need to be discerning. And and how they're talking. Um, you, you talked about the the language in the Capitol riot of you know thank the gods or um, a, a lot of times we accidentally slip into this very sacred type of language, um, the language that is used usually only to describe um, things of God, and we immediately kind of accord that to the political realm. And I think we need to be discerning on that. But also, too, I I just think it's important for people to understand that power and and the nation is is such a predominant form of human idolatry um, that we need to be able to be on guard against it um, for our own hearts, but also in terms of leading the church away from it. Um, If if I could make an analogy, I I think there's a little bit of a parallel between um, idolizing power and idolizing wealth and money. And, And so if the Prosperity gospel is a distortion of the Christian gospel in order to use Jesus as a stepping stone to get wealth and and our vision of material good. I think there's an analogy with Christian nationalism. It's using Jesus as a stepping stone to ultimately get political and earthly power. And, and that's really my great concern with something like Christian nationalism. It's, it's not that Christians are bringing their Christian convictions into the public sphere or into um, the conversation of politics. That's, that's not at all the concern. The concern is that our political allegiances are beginning to distort how we understand the gospel itself. And as soon as the, the, the political ideology that we are beholden to begins to form and shape um, what we are to believe and not believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ, I think that is a good sign um, that we've accorded it far too much weight in our own hearts. The question of distortion is a really good one. Um, the temptation toward nationalism um, because it does feel like it produces some kind of kingdom power, um, but it doesn't seek to extend the actual kingdom that Jesus came to 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 establish. It doesn't bring God's kingdom uh, here in the way we pray in the Lord's Prayer, God's kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It seeks to replace um what Jesus actually came to uh, to establish with our own ideas about 
um, earthly power. It it really is a power struggle, and I think that is um, that's at the principality and powers level. It's at the spiritual level. It's also you know at the reality of the politics of the day. I, it's such a helpful framing of the conversation. And David, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you today because first of all, your book is short, which for which I'm very grateful. Um, it's very precise. It's biblical. Um, and it's like real. It's so timely. So the book is Why Do the Nations Rage? David Ritchie is a pastor in Amarillo, Texas. He is the author. You can find David and the book at davidarichie.com. Um, final thoughts as we part company today. And thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Well, Carmen, I, I just thank you so much for bringing this conversation to light because it is something that we need to talk about. It's something that we need to understand. And I, I think that, again, I want to restate the, the notion that, that politics and political engagement is not a bad thing. It, it's a good thing. It just can't be an ultimate thing. Um, politics, if we think about it, is, is ultimately a flawed coping mechanism for living in a fallen world. And so we need to do our best. We need to steward the opportunities that the Lord gives us. And to live in a democratic society in the United States is a tremendous opportunity. We need to steward that well. But what matters the most is that the people of God have their hope located in a, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And, and that's the truth is that our world is shaking right now. There's chaos mm-hmm. all around us. There's a lot of things to fear um, from the world all around us, but our kingdom cannot be shaken and our king will not fail us. And, and so when we start thinking of Christ and his glory and his kingdom and the beauty of his kingdom, I, I pray that that would just uh, inflame us all um, to be able to have a, a sense of, of triumph and hope and joy, um, knowing that, that that kingdom is not going to fail us as the earthly kingdoms of this world inevitably will. And, and that way, when we do engage um, political matters, we can do so um, with a way that our expectations are appropriately set. Um, the, the state can be compared to um, an instrument of God's justice that is bearing the sword, but it can also be a beast like we see in Revelation. And, and we need to be able to approach our political engagement with that tension in mind and ultimately uh, a greater hope in Christ's most glorious kingdom. That's so helpful. Thank you so much um, for joining us. Maybe f- a follow-up to Why Do the Nations Rage could be the reality that nations rise and fall. David Ritchie, um, what what a delight to talk with you today. David is the pastor of the Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas, and he's the author of Why Do the Nations Rage? You can find him and the book, as well as a really uh, great podcast at davidarichie.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. Let me lift up a quick prayer concern here at the bottom of the hour. Let's be praying for our neighbors in Virginia. There was a catastrophic flood in the western part of the state, and there are still some 40 individuals um, missing. And so let's be uh, let's be praying for the people of Virginia today as we are lifting up our concerns into the presence of the one who can do something about it. Um, None of these people are unaccounted for by God. He knows exactly where they are and the status 
um, the stat and their status in the same way that he knows exactly where we are in our status this morning. So I'll be praying for you. You'd be praying for me. And let's be praying together for the people of Virginia. We got another hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.